Most management ideas fail because of human biology, according to our guest in this show, Don Schmenker, whose academic research focused on the success of implementing management theories and how to shift belief. Welcome back to The Evolving Leader. Scott Allender here, along with John Gomes, and I just want to start the show today by saying we are so grateful to you, our listeners, for joining us each week and helping to build this podcast. Uh, we truly love doing the show, and we are thankful for your support. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. When you see the uh, the numbers of people downloading it every week and going up into thousands every month, it's really exciting uh, to think mm. that, that other people are uh, sharing our passion for, for mm-hmm. this subject. So how are you feeling today, Scott? I'm in a I'm in a really good place, actually. I've got a lot going on at the moment, um, a lot of projects, um, and it's all really life-giving. I'm very energized about it. Um, so yeah, feeling feeling good. So how are you feeling, Mr. Gomes? Uh, I'm feeling the same. Um, and I'm always really interested in meeting somebody who I don't know very well. Um, so Don, um, our guest, is uh, somebody I've never met before. Um, I've done a bit of digging around the uh, the internet about him, so I'm really intrigued. But uh, yeah, no, so I'm in a state of curiosity at the moment. All right, so let's jump in. Don Schmenka began his career as a scientist and engineer. And after graduating from MIT and John Hopkins University, he became fascinated with how people organize and perform in groups, and even more intrigued by the high failure rate of management consulting and leadership theories. And through his research, he's concluded that most management theories fail during implementation due to biological factors, which I'm incredibly curious to learn about. Don is the author of the best-selling book, The Code of the Executive. He's the founder of the Saga Leadership Institute and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, among many, many other publications. So, Don, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Great. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, Don, uh, welcome to the show. Let's start with your story. What compelled you uh, to the sciences and engineering, something I you, we share? Uh, that's where I kind of started. How did this lead you then into a career into organization on leadership, coaching, and, and consulting? It was a series of accidents. I mean, I, um, I almost dropped out of high school because I was bored. <laughs> and and uh, then they told me that I'd have to repeat the senior year, which I forgot to show up for. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I said, well, how many months do I have? They said, you got 90 days. So I literally did my whole senior year in 90 days, which I found it was challenging. And uh, then I went on into to college and I, they didn't care if I showed up or not. So I found that would, that was interesting. So I became fascinated in, in engineering and science. I ended up um, at MIT uh, in planetary physics, but I also did some work with uh, biomedical engineering. I helped automate the biomedical lab there and also... Um, the I, I put my way through college, so I worked at the laboratory there for the Trident nuclear system. Now, here's the issues that I was looking at. I I loved studying the universe, and I and I started studying the closest planet to us, which of course you know was the one we're standing on. I was all, I'm a lazy. I was already here, <laughs> and I noticed humans. And a lot of the work we had done with the Harvard MIT biomedical lab is I just I actually started getting into human physiology, et cetera. My graduate work at Hopkins was when I uh, began looking at human grouping behaviors, and that's really fascinated me. So uh, I was asked to teach there when I finished uh, my graduate work, and it gave me a chance to really dig into what a lot of leaders 
and our executive MBA program there were, were dealing with, their struggles, their frustrations. And I kept hearing about this, um, these problems with implementing these best-selling management theories or you know, these, these experts come in, they leave, the, the organization ends up being, I don't know, a little bit less than when they showed up in terms of frustrated, jaded employees, et cetera. So I, I took that on as an interesting challenge because several came to me and said, Is it, isn't, couldn't this be biological? So that's when I began venturing into to that. When you say biological, because that, that could mean different things to people. Um, right. What do, what do you mean by that? I started looking at our, our species from a, a genetic level because uh, I found out that when I would ask, and I, and I still do this test today because I, I train 700 CEOs a year in, uh, in this work, and I always like to do anecdotal research. And I ask, you know, what, it, what are the biggest problems or issues you're, you're facing? And, and I'll have a list, and there may be 15 or 20 CEOs in the room. And what I found out, it was always similar to the lists I had been capturing for 20 years. In other words, there's a lot of commonality in what leaders struggle with, and especially CEOs when they're trying to run their businesses. You know, future sales uncertain, or how do we survive disruption? Um, hiring and retaining talent, you know, how do we do that? Accountability, people problems, et cetera. Um, but I also noticed when I uh, did my first book, uh, The um, Code of the Executive, it was o Oxford University gave me permission to use this management training program from 700 years ago. And it was based on Samurai. And so when I went through this manuscript and I, I, I published this, I noticed that their chapters were similar to the problems we were having. So now we had two, two data points to look at. One is the commonality and the ancient this sustainability of these patterns, which led me to believe, yeah, this, this is probably something that is part of our species and could there be a primal pattern? But the problem is, as I normally in science, we go to see what's published, we go to see what's, um, what the theories are and talk to the experts. So I did the same thing to begin this journey and it, um, it ended up being a lot of mistakes for me because I, I couldn't find the answers I was looking for. In other words, when I looked at the number of business books published annually, there's 35,000. And I asked these CEOs, have you, have you ever heard this? And they said, we had no idea. As, as you publish more in cancer research than, than on cancer research, yet you're still having problems that are 700 years old, maybe thousands of years old. So this is what really led me into this journey to find out why things are failing and how to fix it. And that's uh, what got me here. So so what have you discovered in your own research and, and what do you... What have you been doing to fix it? Well, I found out that a lot of the problems, I mean, even though you can go on Google Scholar and type in management theory failure rates, and you're going to see 70 to 90% failures. And most bankrupt companies used all the experts and the authors, right? And, um, and when I, I, I talk to a lot of these authors, you know, I, I did anecdotal research. at the, I would get them drunk at the hotel bar after they spoke. <laughs> and they would admit it. They never really tested their theories before they, they sold us their books. So, um, what, I, what I decided to do was go back and find out what was going on. And so I stopped studying successes because I realized, you know, from, from a scientific viewpoint, successes um, end up having a life cycle of only, I don't know, two, two to three years. So you take today's great company book, right? So there's always, a, always a, a great company series of bestsellers out there with all these great companies. And then you go look at that list three years later, it's changed. So I thought, why don't we start doing autopsies? So we began studying the dead. 
And it was from the autopsies we began to find out what was missing. So what was missing essentially was the all those theories we have, which are, you know, what do I got to do differently to be a better leader? And how do I do it differently? Are all great concepts. And they're all, it's all great advice. The problem is that results that leaders look for are driven by human behavior, you know, human decisions. So when I go back to these CEOs and I say, okay, how many of these problems you've given me here are because of a decision one or more humans made? (laughs) That's like all of them. So I said, so maybe these theories we're talking about are great theories. These are great books. These are great methodologies, but they're just tools. And, and a, you know, like the old saying, a fool with a tool is still a fool. <laughs> What's really driving results? And it, it ends up being human behavior, human decision. But we had no courses. We had no uh, research popular in the business community around altering human belief. Human belief alters human behavior. So we thought, what if we started, you know, forget the tools, there's plenty out there and they're all great. But what if we started looking at how do we alter human belief? Because that would fix the problem. And so that's what we did. We ended up doing, uh, I ended up um, every year taking an expedition somewhere in some remote region. I would study tribes, I would study lost civilizations. I would look at how they were organizing so I could look at these basic primal patterns and then see how they were accommodating belief shifting. And then I began using that. And when we started working with companies, their sales would double, triple, or in some cases, increase by 10 times within a few years. So now I knew we had something because we could take what we learned, put it into a company, and we could see sales go forward or or whatever performance they were looking for. Some were trying to fix internal cultural problems. But so, so we tested it, it worked, and I started speaking on that and publishing. So you know, I'm on the road a lot, just doing speech tours and working with companies directly and, uh, and doing podcasts with wonderful people like you guys. So can, can you give us an example then of, um, you know, a fundamental belief change and uh, that would drive that kind of outcome and something in terms of how you went about doing that? Sure. Um, we, went, we went to look at the, the, the base patterns of tools that we see leaders using. And you know, it was like strategic planning. That's great. I mean, you need that. You need to have a strategy to win. You need to have leadership to execute the strategy. So there was a lot of stuff around training and development. And then you needed to have a culture, you know, these, these shared values and beliefs. So there was a lot of stuff out there, a lot of tools on culture change. And then you had to make sure that organization was structured appropriately and that execution occurred. So there's a lot of work in plans and you know action planning and, and project planning. So we took those tools this, the, that I mentioned here, and I said, you know, okay, these are great tools, and there are a lot of books on it, a lot of experts out there. But why are the failure rates so high? So we started looking at um, areas of research that had not been not been evaluated or, or executed before, and that was like in strategic planning. We decided, well, let's go to the study of the military because they invented strategic planning and. I was asked to be, to, um, actually it was before the Gulf War, um, the U.S. Navy hired me to apply this to transform their fleet warfare readiness, which we did successfully. And it executed well uh, during the Gulf War. Um, then we looked at training and development. We thought, well, okay, well, let's, let's look at some tribal areas. We started studying the Vikings and that was an area there. Culture change. Is there a company that has sustained culture? And we found one in North Africa. This is like 8,000 year old organization. So I 
ended up grabbing my daughter and said, we're going to go into the Atlas Mountains and we're going to visit these people. So I learned something from that. And now at Hopkins, we had a lot of psychiatric modeling. And then um, in terms of plans and actions, I decided, well, what's been the most epic planning failure in modern history? Black Hawk Down. So I started working with Matt Eversman and uh, spent the, about a year or more with him looking at what was going on. He was the main character in the, in, in the book. Uh, when this all went to crap, so I can understand what was happening. Anyway, out of all of these kind of obtuse and different and unique research areas, we figured out what was missing. And so we came up with, instead of strategic planning, it's more about intuition, you know, throughout history. The great leaders didn't follow or out-analyze the enemy. They out-intuited them. So if you look at disruption today, you see a lot of that going on. Um, in, fa- in fact, my friend George Stalk, he, um, I don't know if you saw his uh, recent Harvard Business Review article, and he's, he, he was the guy that started time-based competition uh, back um, 20 years ago. So, uh, and he's had a number of articles in Harvard Business Review. I've, and I spend two hours a week with George. <laughs> so, you know, we get together and we Zoom together and we press each other's brains and challenge ideas. It's really a lot of fun. In fact, I'm going to interview him tomorrow for my Becoming Samurai course, which is online now, and we're going to put that in there. But um, what was happening, he, he did this, this article on disruption, and in it, he uh, used a military concept called the OODA loop, and it was, which was a way fighter pilots could outmaneuver. I see, you, you remember that? This is, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is, um, he began applying that in business, and part of that is the shifting of beliefs, which is the orientation phase of the OODA loop. So this all works. And what, what I was able to do was pull this together in these elements of how do we create intuition? You know, how do we create a compelling saga? How do we group by triggering tribal grouping instincts? How do we structure our companies according to levels of complex thinking using the uh, Dr. Elliot Jack psychiatric research? How do we evolve? Not like plan and execute, but how do we evolve and adapt rapidly? And these are the dimensions that were missing around belief shifting in leaders. And when it happened, companies grew faster and they were more competitive and could survive or induce disruption. When you say shifting beliefs, is it a change in mindset of the organizational culture, change in mindset of the leadership about what's possible, getting them to think differently? Is there a particular self-limiting belief that you encounter over and over again that's hindering these kinds of intuitive uh, approaches? Uh, yeah, it is, it, it is about mindset. And, and depending on which area of research, some people call it paradigm shift. Some people call it worldviews. People call it, you know, wh- whatever reality looks like. I mean, it's more of an ontological um, phenomena. And so in altering um, a belief system, is, yeah, it's essentially changing a way of thinking, but not like analytically. You know, um, Thomas Kuhn wrote a great book called the, uh, I think it was The Structure of Scientific Revolution, I believe. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Paradigm, it. Where he introduced the paradigm shift, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And so a lot a lot of what we, what this is about is, isn't new, it's ancient. You know, I mean, Socrates, you know, I mean, it, so it goes back a ways and, and Kuhn did a great book on how that occurs. And what he found out is the same thing we find out. It's not about a new analysis of the data. It's about seeing the data differently. And that's how breakthroughs occur. And that's where this intuition and this creativity comes about. So, you know, when we train leaders, we're looking at, you know, if you're not able 
to manage the beliefs of the people that are following you. You're just going to be throwing tools at a problem. It might work, it might not. But if you want to not participate anymore in, the, in those high failure rates, you have to use the tools, but drive them from what drives human decision. And that is a change of thinking. We want to hear from you. Send us your leadership questions on Instagram at Evolving Leader, and John and Scott will address them in a future show. And be sure you're subscribed to the Evolving Leader podcast on your favorite platforms so you catch all of our exciting new content. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. How, how do you think your approach, um, which is profoundly human-centric, is, how's it landing uh, given the nature of change in the world at the moment? Because the last four or five, ten years, there's been a kind of escalation in in the way that the kind of Silicon Valley playbook is is being adopted in organizations, different kind of worldview, if you like, about how you, you see and solve problems. Um, you know, you've got a lot of change going on. What are you noticing in terms of how leaders are reacting to this? Have you seen a change in, in their willingness to, to engage with your thinking or is it, is it being different in any qualitative way? No, the, uh, they actually enjoy it. I mean, I, I train, like I said, 700 CEOs a year. So I've trained about 15,000 over the past 20 years. And it's a great audience because if you want to test something, you got to find the most cynical, sarcastic people. Mm-hmm. And that's CEOs. <laughs> you know, because they've seen all the speakers, they've read all the books and they're in the trenches every day. And it's, it's hard, it's hard to bullcrap them. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a great audience. And, I might have had two or three resistors out of the thousands, but most find it refreshing. And in fact, a lot of it is just head slap obvious. Oh my God, you're right. I mean, why didn't we know this before? And I've had a lot say, yeah, when I started my company, I used to do this because it is part of our nature. What I'm teaching isn't like my stuff. It's, it's your stuff. It's, it's basic human evolution. So, um, and they walk out thinking, uh, you know, my spouse has been telling me, to go back to how you used to lead and quit listening to these analytical experts, which we do need tactically, but from a strategic level of leadership, it was about inspiring and aligning. And, you know, like I, I tell, um, you know, Apple's using a lot of our research and their, their innovation training. And uh, my colleague, Cameron Lugman is, was pioneering that uh, Cupertino and, and he's also a samurai uh, guy. So we, we got our start together uh, in samurai research. Um, and when, when Steve Jobs died, they wrote books about his leadership style. And what did they say? <laughs> yeah. it was, right? I mean, it was like the guy violated what we teach and how to be a good manager. Right? He, he, people felt belittled or disliked. or I mean, there was just all this stuff. I mean, he was an asshole. He was this. He was that. But I thought that was interesting because how does a guy – who would violate what we teach in leadership, create the most powerful company in the world? Well, that's a good question. I think it should be asked. And if we ask it, we quickly find, then we look at other leaders, um, a lot of them weren't doing what was being taught either. I mean, a lot of them were assholes too. I mean, you go back and you look at some of the great generals and we go back. uh, But what happened is people were following them because we're teaching leadership wrong. Followers don't follow leaders. 
followers follow the story the leader represents, what we call the compelling saga, you know, using the Viking term, you know, and, and so that explains why these people who may not be managing the way we would teach it end up succeeding and growing companies and organizations or winning wars because people are believing in their story. And so what I try to tell leaders is what story do you represent, you know, in yourself? Because that's what they're really going to follow. I tell them, look, I'm not telling you to go back and be an asshole. <laughs> it's better to do all the other things right too. But if you have to choose one of these horses to ride, I'd say, look, they have to believe in you and where you're going, and then you can help them win. And um, that, that answered the question. And so I thought that was great because it validated 5,000 years of leadership uh, studies that we were doing already. So something occurred to me as you were speaking around trying to recapture this uh, intuitive understanding or sense-making of situations, which you would probably do when you have your business at a smaller size, when you feel like you're in control. Is it a scale problem? Is it as things get bigger, you start to trust proxies for information and experts who are supposed to be making sense of all that complexity? You kind of, you, you switch off the belief that, that your intuition can actually work at scale? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it doesn't have to degrade that part, but we do end up a couple of patterns we notice in leaders, and, and we ask this of a lot of CEOs too, is how much time do you spend getting sucked into operations? And like almost everybody raises their hand. And it's just because under you, there's weakness. And maybe you promoted people beyond their capacity. Uh, getting back to Elliot, Dr. Elliot Jack's complex thinking, uh, his psychiatric models, and they're not able to, to figure it out. Like, you know, they need to be told. I mean, it, there's different levels of things. It's fascinating models uh, that he had, had created around this. But um, so that that's one area where I think leadership can be subdued as we get distracted, as we get bigger and we get sucked in, and then we start getting analytical, which we need tactically, but not strategically. Um, I don't know. I think it's leadership is a journey that is an art. And that's what I tell everybody. It's, you know, we're seduced by our tools because they give us, safety it makes us feel safe because we have control we can understand something model it analyze it but altering beliefs is an art and art has none of that art is not in control there's no safety it's dangerous and so crafting this within yourself is uh is is quite a journey um but i learn a lot from studying CEOs, and i learn a lot by implementing this in companies you you mentioned that um the ceo who's getting sucked into operations it's because there's weakness you know below them mm -hmm. but you also mentioned safety and and, and you referenced the sort of the, the asshole leader model as well is there is there times though when it's not a weakness it's a there's a control problem at the ceo level where it creates a, a lack of safety so people don't step out and take calculated risks and you know innovate in the way that they need to because the leader won't release control or has too many opinions about everything yeah, and, uh, and sometimes we run into them. I mean, we try to select our clients where we don't. I mean, as long as they're willing to know they don't know everything, uh, we can work with them. But if they think they know everything, it's like, no, never mind. You know? but, um, but yes, uh, sometimes it's an awakening when a leader realizes, like, I am, I am getting sucked in because I hired weak people under me. You know? So it's still my fault. You know? So if I'm complaining about it, I can't complain. It was me. And... Um, 
And we say, look, you can keep doing that until the company tops out. But if you want to accelerate growth, you need strong people. And strong people don't want to work with someone like you. You know, they, want, they don't want to work in weak teams. Um, they don't want to have their boss doing their job. So when you're ready to evolve, uh, we'll talk. And, and, and a few CEOs who are in that, that well, not all CEOs are like this, but those few that are, um, sometimes wake up and they're like, you know, you're right, it's time. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of these CEOs are entrepreneurs and they never really got excited about running a huge scalable organization. They liked starting, and, you know, they like innovating, they, uh, but when it gets into operating, it's like, wait a minute, I'm not enjoying this, you know? And so um, I think once you have a self-awareness as a leader, you kind of know where you want to play at. And that helps. Mm. A lot of these entrepreneurs, it's like, look, hire a CEO, move on to the next project, you know, chair the board. I mean, don't sit there and get miserable. <laughs> what have you been seeing on the leadership front since the start of the pandemic? Um, interesting. I've, I've seen a bipolarized effect. There um, have been a lot of companies that have dropped out. Like I'm going to be in New York City in, in a couple of hours and a lot of restaurants didn't make it as an example. Hotels, not all have opened up again. I mean, I, and, and the ones that are, you know, it's a great time to visit New York City because <laughs> the hotel, hotels are cheap and uh, they're trying to get people back in. On the other hand, I've seen... Um, uh, companies make more money than they ever have. It's been amazing because in these audiences and and they're of course probably not in hospitality. Um, they're in other areas. So this seems to be this this bipolar effect. You know, uh, some companies are, are racing ahead. Some companies are struggling just to stay alive. I think um, the challenge for leadership is going depending on where you are with it. Is how do you adapt? How do we evolve? And it's always been what we've done as a species. It's always what nature has done. But we don't really teach adaptable evolution in our business schools. So a lot of leaders are like, how do I do that? And um, that, that's why we, when, we, when we teach this form of our work is, you know, we like to teach you that, hey, you make a plan, you execute the plan. That's how it works. But then you become a CEO or a C-level executive and you realize it's bullshit. You know, no plan ever works. You know, you have to figure it out. It's going to, you know, when I was working with Black Hawk Down, it was interesting. One um, uh, saying that came up is, you know, every, every planning is necessary, but no plan will work, you know, mm -hmm. because the enemy has a vote on your plan. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And uh, how they got out of Mogadishu and survive um, was was miraculous, but a lot of it was ongoing adaptation on minute by minute. And because they could adapt faster, they were able to outmaneuver the enemy and get out of there. Same thing with companies. What have you learned about yourself during the same time period? Uh, how to adapt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because uh, I, I, I do a lot of speaking at conferences and industry associations and things. Of course, all that got shut down because nobody was showing up. Uh, so I learned how to do, um, you know, studio level Zoom work. And so I've done a lot of Zoom speeches. But what I did is I, I took a cigar room in my house and turned it into a studio. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to put, so I did an experiment. I um, had taught a lot of the samurai stuff, like, because I love how they 
talk, what we're talking about and put it into play, like we have to unhook our, our egos because what stops us is fear and selfishness. If you think about all the failures of management theory implementation and you look at all the behaviors that caused it, it's all those typical, typical dysfunctional behaviors, the politics, the silos, change resistance. I mean, you know, you know the list. Mm-hmm. And underneath all that, it's like the funny joke I tell people, I said, you, you know, the, the show, the television show, The Office, right? Um, and it's like people think it's a comedy. I say, no, it's a documentary. <laughs> it's like what people do. And when I got underneath that, our genetics research really helped because it turned out that it was all from fear and selfishness. When you think about it, at the bottom of every one of those behaviors is somebody who's afraid was selfish. And then we found out, well, why is that? That's not taught. How did that happen? And um, this is where the evolutionary genetics and psychology stuff came into play. It's because as mammals, all animals are selfish because selfishness is the best strategy for committing genetic warfare. So we all program to commit genetic warfare. Selfish animals, they have life longer than unselfish animals and they have more time to replicate their information. And that's how genetic warfare is, is, is conducted by the replication of data in ourselves. So what we had to do is figure out how do you unhook the selfishness? And this is where the samurai figured it out. And they didn't have the neurology that we have now. I mean, now, now we can validate everything they were doing, but it was around something around death, remembering you must die. And somehow that unhooked that genetic program in our brain and gave us power to operate with bravery and honor. So I started teaching this like 20 years ago, and we took dysfunctional teams that themselves would self-measure. They were wasting half their time in bullshit, dysfunctional Mm -hmm. behaviors. And within four months to six months, they would cut it in half, and then half again. So essentially, they could asymptotically get down to close to zero dysfunction within the next year, year and a half by using these techniques. So anyway, how did I pivot? I'm sitting in my home. I thought, you know what? Why don't I learn how to do filming? Why don't I learn how to do chromatography? Why don't I learn you know, how to do a script? And why don't I create a, and I did, I created a course called Becoming Samurai, where we put all this um, online in, in a nine week program. So, and we just launched it by the way. So it's kind of cool. That's, that's mm-hmm. how I did it. And, and actually I love it. I love media. I love like, like what you guys are doing. This is all new to me, but I'm just uh, inspired by it. So I'm gonna spend more of my time putting out online executive and leadership education uh, using this modality. So it's been fun. Mm. I'm really fascinated in this um, this core kind of topic of fear and selfishness as being, you know, the origins of so much of organizational dysfunction because we see it all the time. <laughs> Obviously, okay. we all do. We see it in politics. We see it in, you know, we see it in the uh, the vaccine wars. We're seeing it in every aspect of um family life and so on so in terms of you know kind of being able to evolve past the ego and to see this greater you know world view i'm really interested in how you see the kind of intergenerational aspects of this because we're going to be you know we're going to be inhabiting a world where we've got four generations working together for the first time and the differences between those value sets and worldviews and so on Have have you thought about that in terms of the challenges facing leaders as we start to manage those people? Well, it's interesting. I kind of I cheat, right? So I only deal with things that are part of our biology and they're not going to change from generation. No. <laughs> In two million years, I'll have to eat my words. But for now, we got plenty of runway left. 
So a lot of how we're behaving is how we behaved for five, 10,000 years. And, um, and every generation had a, the new generation thing going on. But at the end of the day, we're still human. You're still programmed for genetic warfare and you're still going to react that same way. So like, for instance, when I go study different tribes, one of the breakthroughs I realized was we're trying to do organizational change programs, but we're not altering tribal grouping instincts. So why don't we alter symbols and rituals and magic as an example? So take any generation. They all have their own symbols. Yeah. They all have their own rituals, you know, their own magic, meaning the, the mythologies and their stories. So all that's still going to work. It doesn't really matter. What, who's the, the, you know, you don't need necessarily need to uh, tell us any names, but can you give us some examples of people that have, you know, kind of challenged your assumptions about what great leaders do? You know, we talked about Steve Jobs. I mean, when they tried to hire his replacement when he got ill, you know, the, the search companies came back and said there is nobody else like him in the world right now. Um, so I'm not necessarily thinking about the one in a billion type of person, but, you know, who has kind of confounded your expectations, you know, given their success and what you saw in them? Have you, have you met some really outlier type people? Generally, I learned from them. I mean, what I, what I got when I realized that point of, um, uh, of you know, like Steve Jobs, an example, like how do you violate what we're teaching and still create a company? So I love the outliers because when they, they contradict what I know, that's an area to learn and to find out what's working or what's not. Because before I was part of the problem. I, I was teaching at the graduate school at Johns Hopkins University, and I was teaching analytical models. I was teaching the tools. I was at the textbooks. And, you know, my classes were very popular. And, you know, I thought I was a successful uh, adjunct faculty. But it wasn't until I started seeing these failures, the, the ones that fell outside of what we thought the norm was. Um, but as a scientist, I thought, that's, that's amazing. Let's find out what happened. And I always learn something from them. And, um, and then uh, realized it wasn't really new. It had always been, it has always been there. And we just never noticed it before. You know, uh, human intuition as an example. I love the movie Patton where there's a, he goes up against Rama in North Africa. And Rama's like the industry expert. He's the thought leader in tank battle strategy. And in the middle of the movie, um, he engages Rama's troops in North Africa. He wins and he says, Romilly, magnificent bastard, I read your book. Now, that was an interesting statement because does it mean I read your book? So I knew the analysis and I knew how to do it better. Well, I read your book because I wanted to know what you were thinking about tank battles. And that's what he meant. We have to outthink, not outanalyze. And uh, leaders that can do that will survive disruption. And, uh, and like I said, with George Stock and I getting together every week, I um, want to do get more into that and get some more out online for uh, teaching and maybe a future podcast or something maybe with George. It's that ability to disrupt and adapt. And it's all about thinking. It's all about changing your beliefs about what you think is happening. How many people said Amazon was going to fail when he started? It was like, they said, this guy's not going to make it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, how many people said South in, in the States, Southwest Airlines, highly successful airline, market capitalization exceeding the market cap of all the other airlines. And yet when it started, Nobody told all the big airlines, hey, watch out, watch out for this, you know, this new airline in Texas. No, everybody ignored it. And then now all of a sudden, everybody says, oh, they're the greatest. But, but you weren't saying that earlier. Hmm. What would be a real pragmatic piece of advice, a takeaway that you would give somebody listening right now who's saying, 
I don't want to be fearful. I don't want to be selfish. I, I want to have the right belief system. What's what's a nugget you could give them to to walk away from this show with? Well, that's because it's in that it's in that that course. So I think, but I'll give you a head a head, head, up, head up on that. So because if you sagaleadership.com forward slash waitlist, here's what you're going to find. I started directly with that question because I kept hearing that as a, I think the first thing is to get in touch with what are we afraid of. And a lot of people don't sit down and have an exercise like, what the heck am I afraid of? But that allows us then to look at what are we attached to? And in other words, what has to die? What has to die in our life that we're attached to? So that fear goes away. And this was an ancient technique that had been used in many um, warfare training areas, like death before battle. I was just curious, why would you die before battle? It's because you got nothing left to lose. And that's that's a dangerous enemy to go up against, right? When there's nothing. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the Muhadin, when the, you know, they would bury their sons uh, before they went to battle. They had funerals. So they went in as ghost fighters, which is where the term came from. Mm-hmm. But for our lives, more practically, it's a matter of saying, well, where do I want to go on my career? Or this project? Or I'm going to start this thing. There's some risk involved. Um, we get held back by these fears. And I would say becoming self-aware of that and then taking steps to release from it gives you power. You know? And I, I tell people, I say, look, CEOs, when they're looking for who's valuable in their organization, we have all the standard, well, I need talent, skills, all this other stuff. But you know, what they're really looking for, people that are, have honor and bravery honor and the things we don't teach. You know, are you brave enough to challenge me? Like if I'm full of crap as a CEO, can you come into my office quietly and say, hey, look, I think you're wrong shit. <laughs> and, and let me know what's going on. Like you said earlier, so, so, so brilliantly is, yeah, a lot of times we don't know. Companies get big, we lose touch. I need brave people. And I need honor too, because I can't make everybody's decisions. They're going to have to make those decisions. But are those decisions coming from the values that I have in this company, the culture we have. So I think we should be teaching bravery and honor more than we do today. Mm. I think that's, that's brilliant um, and probably a, a wonderful place to, to bring our conversation to a close. Until next time, the world is evolving. Are you?